Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 9 for the first half of November 2011. With that said, the topic I'm going to talk about today is Earth's changing magnetic field and the young Earth creationism claim that comes from it. I'll discuss the changing magnetic field in relation to 2012 doomsday scenarios in a future episode. The basic claim is that Earth's magnetic field has been directly observed to be declining for the past several hundred years, and it's also been determined through other methods to have been declining for at least the last few thousand years. Young Earth creationists frequently claim that if you extrapolate this backwards in time, you'll reach a point about 10,000 years ago when the magnetic field was simply too strong to have been able to allow life to exist. Therefore, Earth was created recently, not billions of years ago. In a few words, this is fairly silly, because you can't just take a trend from a few hundred years and extrapolate back thousands and tens of thousands of years, and we also know that the field has reversed many times, which refutes the idea that it's just been decaying from a high point 10,000 years ago. Case closed. Okay, I guess we do have some time left in the episode, so I will go into a little more detail. People discovered magnetism centuries ago, and it was really explored and formalized by what I fondly refer to as the old dead white guys between about the 1700s and 1800s. Now, yes, I do realize that women and non-white people have made significant contributions to science and continue to do so, and that the Arab world kept science going while Europe was in the Dark Ages. But let's be objective. Most of the basic fundamentals of science today were figured out by white European men between about the 1600s and early 1900s. I'm talking Newton, Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Gauss, Kelvin, Maxwell, Einstein, and Schrodinger. People like them. Anyway, moving on, ship captains used Earth's global magnetic field to navigate. But even in the 1700s, they realized that Earth's magnetic field changes from year to year. In fact, they had to purchase new maps in order to correct for magnetic pointings to actually know where they were. Without a correct and current map, they could be off by tens or hundreds of miles. Something significant when that reef is coming up in 10 seconds instead of 10 minutes. Around the turn of 1900, scientists were able to start to actually measure the global magnetic field strength. They continued to measure it over the past century. What's been found is that the field strength is decreasing. That's a fact. Between 1900 and 2000, the field strength has decreased by roughly 6%. Based on crustal rocks, we've been able to tell the decline is about 35% from what it was 2,000 years ago, and it seems to have accelerated a little bit over the past few years. Another interesting tidbit of information is that in the 1920s, geologists noticed that some volcanic rocks were magnetized in the opposite direction to the current magnetic field. When more and more like this were found, and then when they were dated, it was discovered that Earth's magnetic field has gone through many reversals throughout its history. The last one was about 
780,000 years ago. Or, if you're a young Earth creationist, it was during the Flood. But more on that later. We also know that the current magnetic North Pole is moving, traveling towards Russia at something like about 50 kilometers per year, while the South Magnetic Pole is moving somewhat more slowly these days, but it moved more quickly in the early 1900s. What this does is to paint a picture of a dynamic process that creates a global magnetic field that changes with time. The change can be in its strength, specific pole locations, and even the overall orientation of that field. Enter the Young Earth Creationists. Creationists actually don't agree on a conclusion or a model from the data and from their readings of the Bible in order to present to people. So first, we'll go over what I call Scenario 1, which was promulgated by people such as the now-incarcerated Kent Hovind. I actually have not been able to find any other creationist who really believes this, but we'll ignore that for now. The so-called Dr. Hovind makes the claim... Textbooks say, well, yes, there are magnetic reversals at the bottom of this mid-Atlantic ridge. Well, that's simply baloney, okay? There are no reversed polarity areas, unless it's where rocks flipped over when the fountains of the deep broke open. That may have happened in some areas. But this, this is a lie, talking about magnetic reversals. Even uh, one author wrote in a book, uh, Deep Crustal Drilling in the North Atlantic Ocean, Science Magazine, Volume 204, he said, it's clear the simple model of uniformly magnetized crustal blocks of alternating polarity does not represent reality. What they show you in your textbooks is not reality. Now, Walt Brown has a great book called In the Beginning. I disagree with Walt Brown on a couple of key things, and he's a friend of mine and a brilliant man, Ph.D. in physics, taught at the Air Force Academy for years, has a website, creationscience.com, but I highly recommend his book in spite of our minor disagreements. He's got some great stuff on here on magnetic reversals. No, there are no magnetic reversals, only stronger and weaker magnetism. It's actually a jumbled up mess down there at the mid-Atlantic Ridge. See, the Earth has lost 10% of its magnetic strength in the last 150 years. It's lost 40% of its strength in the last 1,000 years. It's pretty overwhelming evidence that the Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker. What does that mean? Well, that means it used to be stronger. And if the Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker, this creates a problem. Because if you go back in time, about 25,000 years, the magnetic strength would have been too great for life to exist here because of the heat generated. And so the evolutionists have to find an answer for the problem. Hey, we're watching the magnetic field decline, so it must be going through reversals. It has never been observed to reverse. It's only been observed to decline. The scenario, then, that Dr. Hovind proposes can be summarized as what I said originally. He believes Earth's magnetic field has been on an exponential decay since creation a few thousand years ago, and that means Earth is young because the field would have been too strong to A, be physically possible, or B, to allow life to exist. This is based on the current trend. Seems plausible, except we do have that pesky thing of magnetic reversals, despite what the good doctor wants to believe. And that thing about extrapolating past trends for 100 times the length we observe the current trend for something is just kind of stupid. Taking feedback from the last episode, I was going to end it there, but I'm going to quickly address a few other things that Hovind stated. Perhaps the most important is the quote from the Science article stating, It is clear that the simple model of uniformly magnetized crustal blocks of alternating polarity does not represent reality. Seems fairly damning. 
Let's look at the next sentence. Clear reversals of polarity with depth are observed. This is an obvious, clear, and blatant example of quote mining. Hovind takes one sentence out of context to claim one thing when the scientist who wrote the paper clearly meant the exact opposite. The other item is his statement, Earth has lost 10% of its magnetic field strength in the last 150 years. It's evidence that the Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker. That means it used to be stronger. If you go back in time, the magnetic field would have been too great for life to exist here because of the heat generated. Simply put, other than the fact the Earth's field is decreasing now, nothing in that sentence is true. The third point that I want to mention is the whole... Evolutionists have to find an answer for the problem of Earth's magnetic field declining, so they say, They must be going through reversals. It has never been observed to reverse, and it's only been observed to decline. Well, first, there's something ironic about this man of God saying that we've never seen it reverse, therefore it hasn't happened, whereas he believes everything in the Bible, but he's never seen it. Second, nobody's ever seen gravity, but we see its effects true. Humans have not had the instruments, nor really were we around, to observe a reversal before, but we can see the evidence for it in the maps that I'll post to the show notes. This whole thing about were you there is actually something that's fairly common in young earth creationism, but it's really a red herring. Were you there should be, instead, what is the evidence? What convinces scientists that this is the case, as opposed to what the creationists claim? And this is from a man who used to be a schoolteacher before he was incarcerated. Enter Creationist Scenario 2, which was proposed by another creationist, Dr. Russell Humphreys. Humphreys actually can legitimately call himself a doctor, as he does have a PhD in physics from Louisiana State University. This is in contrast with Kent Hovind, whose degree is from a diploma mill about 100 kilometers south of me. Hovind's thesis starts out by saying, Hello, my name is Kent Hovind. I am a creation science evangelist. I live in Pensacola, Florida. Hovind's thesis also contains a poem he wrote while thinking about something on one particular day. But I digress. Dr. Humphreys accepted that magnetic field reversals have actually happened. So, to some extent, he doesn't plunge his head into the sand and ignore everything about modern geology. But while he accepts that reversals happened, he compresses all magnetic field reversals to the time of Noah's flood. After the flood, the magnetic field increased again until it had a high point when Jesus was born and then it decayed as we see it now. Before the flood, the field was at the same exponential decay that Hovind thinks, and so the basic premise in why Earth must be young is the same as before. I'll have an image of the Humphreys model posted in the show notes. If you want to run the model forward, supposedly we start at a very high field intensity during creation, then it decayed, then it dropped to zero at the beginning of the flood, reversed a lot really, really quickly, started to climb back up to reach a relative high around the time of Jesus, because he had, you know, that whole magnetic personality going, and then continued to decay as before, like nothing happened. I'm reminded of the disclaimer during the South Park episode about Scientology that stated, yes, Scientologists really believe this. Yes, young Earth creationists really believe this, or at least some of them do.
I'm really not sure what else to say here. It just doesn't make any sense, and it's pretty much 100% up to the creationists to provide any evidence for it. For example, they could provide rock ages showing the reversals that date to the flood. You know, dozens of reversals happening in the space of a year. Except that they don't believe in radiometric dating for rocks. I should also note that the evidence shows that there have been dozens, if not hundreds, of these reversals throughout time. Now, my understanding was that the Judeo-Christian biblical flood lasted 40 days, and then roughly a year before all the flood waters went away, although I'm not quite sure where they went. So, you'd need to flip that magnetic field something like once every three days or so for that to work out. Just FYI. Now, some creationists actually do claim that this second scenario can be tested. To quote from Creation Ministries International, Dr. Humphreys also proposed a test for his model. Magnetic reversals should be found in rocks known to have cooled in days or weeks. For example, in a thin lava flow, the outside would cool first and record Earth's magnetic field in one direction. The inside would cool later and record the field in another direction. Now, it's important to note at this point that this would not actually be evidence for Humphrey's model. It would just be evidence that the magnetic field can change polarity fairly rapidly. They'd still need to somehow date it to that time period. But moving on, that Creation Ministries International article also stated that Dr. Humphrey's test was actually carried out by two researchers, Robert Coe and Michael Previtt. I apologize for pronunciation again. That these two guys found just such examples where lava that must have cooled within 15 days had a full polarity reversal within the layer. To quote from the Creation Ministries International article, Three years after this prediction, leading researchers Robert Coe and Michael Previtt found a thin layer of lava that must have cooled within 15 days and had 90 degrees of reversal recorded continuously in it. I'll note right off the bat that 15 days is not 3 days, again as would be required for the flood timescale. Their work was done in 1989, and actually... Robert Coe's and Michael Previtt's, or maybe it's Prevot, they published in a reputable journal as opposed to a creationist one. With the wonders of the internet, and with people posting their papers on personal websites, you can view the paper for yourself, and I'll link to it in the show notes. If you're a close reader, you can quickly see that the creation.com article misstates their research right off the bat, for their paper clearly states that they found evidence for a change of 3 degrees per day, which means that it would be 60 days for a full 180-degree flip or 30 days for a 90-degree flip, not 15 days. But to get more into this, I actually contacted Dr. Coe, who's a faculty member at UC Santa Cruz in the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department. I explained the situation, and I asked for his views on the matter. To quote his email response, In both our papers, proposing a rapid field change hypothesis, it was for episodes during a reversal. We explicitly stated that there was no evidence suggesting that the reversal occurred in less than 
the several thousand years duration typical for polarity changes. We've recently been working more on that same reversal, and our paper should be published this month. In it, we show that the second directional jump is almost certainly due to a temporal gap in the lava flow succession rather than the rapid field rotation. I wish you well in your campaign against creationism. I think if the main author of the paper, the Young Earth Creation Scientists or Creationists in general site, says that they've misinterpreted his work, that we can lay this to rest, despite the article's claim, this was staggering news to them and the rest of the evolutionary community, but strong support for Humphrey's model. With all that said, in the end, again, it's really up to the creationists to provide actual independent evidence that their proposed model is correct. Hovind is wrong. There are magnetic field reversals. Humphreys is wrong. You can't compress dozens of field reversals into a single year through any natural process. In that end, if you just want to claim that God did it, then just have the guts to say, God did it. Don't try to distort or lie about the science, just to promote your beliefs. This week, I'm introducing a new segment to the podcast based on some feedback. The idea is to address questions that you, the listener, may have related to astronomy. Preferably, the topic would be related to some of the pseudoscience claim you've heard or something that I've talked about in this podcast before or something that you'd like me to talk about later. But I will bend away from my podcast title and leave it open to general astronomy questions. This week's question comes from Jeff, who was the person who suggested this segment, so obviously he has a question and gets first go. He asks, how do astronomers tell the difference between various types of supernova? Well, Jeff, there are four types of supernova events, or at least four main types. Unhelpfully, they're called type 1A, 1B, 1C, and 2. Some people further subdivide type 2 supernova into 2P and 2L, but I'm not going to do that for this explanation. All supernova classification comes from the kind of light that they emit, and over what period of time. That's really the only classification method to directly answer Jeff's question, and it's later modeling that astronomers use to try to figure out what kind of explosion can produce that kind of light signature. Type 2 supernova are the kind that most of us are probably familiar with. It's the kind where a star, much more massive than the sun, can no longer fuse elements together in its core. The lack of fusion means that there's no outwards pressure, and the star collapses, and this results in heat that creates a massive explosion in which a lot of things happen. And I'll provide links to more information about this in the show notes. The light from these is very bright, and it lasts much longer than type 1 supernovae, and they also contain certain types of hydrogen absorption lines in their spectra. So we know that hydrogen is present in this star or in this object that makes this type of supernova. Type 1 supernovae, as a general rule, lack any hydrogen lines in their spectra. Type 1a marks the presence of strong silicone lines 
Uh, these are silicone two lines at 6,150 angstroms. Type 1B has a helium line, helium 1 at 5,876 angstroms, and no silicone lines. Type 1C has either weak or no helium and no silicone lines. The origins of these are thought to come from binary star systems. Type 1A is where you have a white dwarf star in a binary system that accumulates material onto its surface, leaching it off of its companion. It's like you know, the gold digger that your parents always warned you about. Anyway, when it accumulates enough material that it weighs more than 1.38 times the sun, it collapses into a neutron star in a type 1A supernova event. Type 1B and C are not as well understood. The thought is that they're somewhat like type 2 supernovae, big stars that blow up, but that the outer regions of hydrogen from these stars that are blowing up that would normally surround them have been somehow lost. So that wraps up the Q&A segment, the first one. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, though the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. That brings us to the feedback section of the podcast. Obviously, one feedback item was the inclusion of a Q&A section, which, as you can tell, I've already done. Now, related feedback to last week's topic on the hollow Earth, I first have a correction. This correction was sent by Leonard when I stated that the difference of Earth's equatorial and polar radii was some odd number of kilometers. I said it was 14. It's actually about 13 miles, but 21.3 kilometers. I was using NASA's planetary data fact sheet, which I linked to in the episode 8 show notes. The problem is that I used the volumetric mean radius instead of the equatorial radius in my subtraction, in which case you will get the 14.2 kilometers that I rounded to 14. This is an incredibly minor point, but Leonard is quite right. It is a correction that needs to be made. I've also had people mention that there are more hollow Earth and planet claims out there. There are. I left a lot out. It was a long episode. I'll probably do a full follow-up episode at some point in the future on this, but right now my schedule of planned episodes is full through next April. From the blog, I had a listener named Charles who commented that he would have liked it if I'd gone into more detail on some of the claims raised about Hollow Earth, specifically about Admiral Byrd's alleged encounter that I had opened with. Quite right, I should have at least addressed Byrd and his diary. The conclusion is that no. There is absolutely, positively, no evidence that the story read by George Norrie actually was recorded by Byrd in his diary. The only other references that I found to the story were on paranormal websites. The Ohio State University, that houses 523 cubic feet of material from his life and career, has absolutely no mention of those accounts in its summary of the diary, which I'll link to in the show notes. I did find an apparent copy of his secret diary that he was sworn to secrecy about by the U.S. Navy, yet somehow this secret diary got out. I found a copy of it on Scribd that I'll link to as well, but by all accounts that I could find, it's fake. 
One of the accounts that I could find about this was by someone who actually really wanted to believe that I'll also link to in the show notes. He went through a fairly detailed analysis showing that it's probably fake. In terms of feedback related to an older episode, this is going way back in the archives, back, wow, a month and a half. Episode 4, Comet Elenine. Listener Jeff, the same guy with the Q&A, wrote to tell me about a NASA press release that I'll also link to, stating in its first sentence, Comet Elenine is no more. As I discussed back in my special episode in September, at the time it appeared as though the comet was breaking up. Now it has. It's left a trail of small particles that will continue to orbit in the original path of the comet likely for several centuries or millennia, until radiation pressure from the sun disperses it. And yet, it bears pointing out still that Richard Hoagland still is saying that it's an alien spacecraft, and that it has a tetrahedral shield, and that if it doesn't beam down a message from our past to ourselves, then it'll raise our consciousness, and that the Occupy Wall Street protests and the death of Gaddafi are all because of this comet. Well, alien spaceship. If someone can get me a small sample of what he's smoking, or injecting, or snorting, or whatever, I'd appreciate it so that I can enjoy my next mental vacation even more. That means that it's now time for The Puzzler, where each episode I ask a critical thinking question, or attempt to, based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. Earth is rapidly rotating when it formed, and it rotated quickly to the point the material inside was flung out, making the hollow shell so you can get a spherical cavity inside. That's what some hollow earthers believe. So the puzzler question is, let's say that you have a solid shell with a compressible material inside of it. You're able to rotate this shell very, very quickly about an axis through it. Does a cavity form? And, if it does... What kind of shape would that cavity take on, and why? No one this time explicitly stated the answer that I was looking for, but the three who replied got close. Each one had some element of the answer. Parrot from the SGU message boards was the first to get close, saying that it would form a cat's eye-like slit of lower-density material. Chew followed that up from the SGU message boards, was saying that a hollow ellipsoid with the long axis pointed to the equator would be what would form. Then came Leonard via email, who gave a qualified answer, saying that if gas were available, or if a vacuum could form, then a void would form, and that the gap would be a spherical oval, and the long axis of that oval would be oriented along the spin axis. All y'all had parts of this that were right. The solution is that if you got the sphere spinning fast enough, a rarefaction would occur in the center, and that it would take on a flattened sphere shape, also known as a biaxial ellipse. The short axis of this would be oriented along the north-south spin axis, while the two long axes would be along towards the equator. The reason for this is that the centrifugal force pushes the material outwards from the center, tangential to the direction of spin. 
This means that if you're spinning around a north-south axis, your motion outwards is going to be straight away from that axis. Centrifugal force on material at the equator is going to be much greater than near the poles because the equator is effectively moving around more quickly than if you're just below the poles. So, the material near the poles is not going to get flung out nearly as much, and so it's going to tend to stay where it is. This is why the rarefaction that forms will not extend as far to the surface at the poles, and why you get this biaxial ellipsoid. I should note that this is an entirely fake situation. First, I said that it's a rarefaction, not a hollow, and that's because you wouldn't actually form a vacuum inside by doing this. That's where Leonard's qualified answer comes in as correct, but he got the axes oriented incorrectly. Second, if this were actually Earth, the entire planet would deform into the biaxial ellipse, not just the inside of it. The strength of the shell would need to be much, 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 much stronger than crustal rocks in order to keep the shape stable. I posted this on a physics forum, actually asking to make sure that I had the right answer, and people seemed to get more hung up on the impossibility of the scenario rather than the actual physics involved in the solution. Crazy physicists. This week, the main segment was on magnetic fields, so the puzzler deals with that topic. It's short, and it might be easy. I think it's probably easier than last week's, or last episode's, but we'll see. Let's say that you're at Earth's magnetic north pole, where it is on the surface. You have a compass needle, and this needle is suspended by a thin thread, so it can move in any direction. How would it be aligned? And... Would your answer be different if you were at the magnetic south pole? If so, how? If not, why? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss the solution during the next episode. In terms of announcements this episode, I'm going to start rolling out a few topical interviews as bonus episodes over at least the next two months. The conspiracy skeptic, Carl Mamer, will be a guest on an episode that will be out in about a week, and then on the one-year anniversary of a particularly interesting Coast to Coast episode later this month, I'll have a British guest on, who was effectively the British counterpart to Richard Hoagland during the Apollo era. In December, I'm going to have an interview with a Mayan scholar, because December's regular episodes are going to be my intro to 2012. I also have the bad astronomer Phil Plate lined up for some time in the next few months, as well as Pamela Gay, who's the co-host of the very well-known Astronomy Cast podcast. So stay tuned for those. I expect them to be pretty interesting, and they will all relate to the general subjects of this podcast. Also, part of this is to see if it's practical for me to put out regularly about four episodes a month. We'll see. That wraps up this topic for the ninth edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, 
please use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also, tell your friends, your family, and your frenemies. <laughs>